You're listening to Mission Lab. Mission Lab. From our living human, Rain. Here's our parents, Sean and Camille Brace. Hello to everybody. Welcome back to Mission Lab. We're grateful that you've joined us today. I have a friend of mine who has joined the show, and I know I've been having quite a few guests lately, but I want to assure you that this particular guest will bring some of the most intelligent ideas that you will have heard on this podcast, and I'm not being sarcastic at all. It's my friend David Hamstra, who is coming to us from north of the border in Edmonton, right, David? Yes, that's correct. Yeah, so Edmonton, Alberta, Canada, and he's pastoring there. He has recently returned from Andrews University, where he has been working on a doctorate of theology, but he is back in the parish work now, so to speak, while continuing to work on his doctorate. So, David, thank you for being on with me. Oh, thank you for having me and uh, and for lowering the expectations for your audience, so that if I uh, you know fail to deliver, they won't be too disappointed. Right? <laughs> I don't believe that they will be disappointed at all. I have to tell you um, that just just briefly here that there are certain colleagues in ministry or people that you know from afar where I occasionally have like professional or intellectual jealousy. Uh, you're like, man, that person, you know, they're just so they're, they're getting recognition because they're coming out with these really groundbreaking ideas and stuff. But I want to, and this is not a joke whatsoever, David, you are a person that I'm never jealous of because you are on such a, the next level above me intellectually it would be like you know you're not you're not jealous of people who are clearly in a different class like like me being jealous of michael jordan because of his basketball skills i don't even worry about jealousy with you david oh shucks man i mean um <laughs> that uh, you're you're causing me to blush here if we were this was a vlog you know i'd have to turn away <laughs> from the camera oh man anyway I, I again i'm not being that sarcastically at all you i really really appreciate your perspective your wisdom and uh, your thinking abilities. So before we get into kind of the stuff I want to talk with you about today, David, just tell us a little bit more about your life. You're American, but you somehow were allowed into Canada to to go to school, to work. Tell, how, did you, how did you end up there? Yeah, and, and I should say thank you for those very kind words. Um, I ended up in Canada because I was looking for uh, essentially a deal on uh, on a Seventh Day Adventist uh, religion BA, uh, so I could go into pastoral ministry in our church. Um, and and at the time, the Canadian dollar was trading. Um, well, I should say the American dollar was trading very competitively on the Canadian dollar. So I went north of the border uh, to a small Seventh Day Adventist liberal arts college in Alberta, and. Um, I, I found that I really enjoyed uh, the small class sizes and one-on-one -on -one time with professors, and I stayed there. did a did a four-year BA there with uh, with a little missionary volunteer experience in Australia in between, and then uh, I got hired to work in Northern Alberta, and I had a, a two and by the end three church parish in Northwest Alberta. Uh, then I went back to Andrews University, did my MDiv at the Seventh Avenue Theological Seminary there, and then I came back to Alberta and worked in Fort McMurray for five years, which was a an oil boom town at the time. And then I came back to Andrews, my alma mater, and uh, spent four years working on a Doctor of Theology, as you've just mentioned. And now I'm back here in Edmonton. Man, that's quite a, a journey, a circuitous route back to parish work. What tell tell my audience because I'm still trying to wrap my mind around exactly what uh, your focus is with your doctoral work. What what is it that uh, presumably you're you're writing your dissertation now? What what are you focused on? Um, yeah, I still need to defend my proposal, but my uh, my interest at the moment is to look at uh, the the interface between theology and history, um, 
at Andrews, a uh, doctor of theology degree is a little more multidisciplinary than a PhD. Um, mm -hmm. So I was able to do work in history and theology there. Um, and right now I'm interested in writing around um, issues relating to uh, culture war dynamics and how that's influenced um, uh, Christian theology in America, uh, particularly in the Adventist community. Okay, well, that, that segues into what I want to talk with you about. Um, obviously, this podcast, I, I focus on different topics on mission, discipleship, and uh, kind of ecclesiology, missiology stuff. And you've, you've done quite a bit of work. I've, I've read a lot of your stuff, um, really appreciated it. But kind of, I guess we could say, on, on the secular mind and, and what that entails. So some of what you've written has, has sort of piqued my curiosity as I've thought about my own missional efforts and journey and um, kind of giving me a little different take on how to approach kind of secular secularism. So how would you define what, what is secularism? How would you define it? Yeah. So I should just lay my cards on the table here at the beginning and say mm -hmm. that what I've really done is uh, sort of appropriate the work of Charles Taylor for um, for the Adventist community, um, but I think his his philosophical work has relevance, of course, uh, far beyond. Um, he's really dealing with a story of how we got here in uh, what what we could call maybe the North Atlantic world, right? America, mm -hmm. Europe. Um, so, how do you define secularism? That's you know, of course, a very contested question. Um, how, <laughs> how do you, you define it? <laughs> how one defines it kind of says where you come down <laughs> in certain yeah, ways. Yeah. Um, yeah. So maybe, maybe I'll just follow Taylor here um, because what he likes to talk about instead of secularism is secularity, right? Okay. Um, so secularism kind of implies a certain ideology. Um, mm -hmm. So I would say secularism is um, the idea that uh, there ought to be um, a separation between um, uh, the affairs of, uh, of, of business and government um, and the affairs of religion and spirituality, right? That there ought to mm -hmm. be some kind of mm -hmm. separation there. And, and then there's different kind of secularisms, right? Different people have different ways of parsing that or different societies have different ways of, of bringing that in. And then there's uh, societies that reject secularism and want to have a a close union between religion and all other aspects of life, um, kind of enforced in that way. Mm -hmm. So, um, but then Taylor wants to talk about, okay, well, how do we get to the place where we can, we can even conceive of this, this kind of secularism because it hasn't been that way for most of human history. And he tells a story about, uh, different, uh, understandings of the word secular. Um, he starts with, uh, the medieval times, where secular meant uh, having to do with the affairs of this world. You know, there were there were people who were who were the seculars in society, mm -hmm. uh, the tradesmen, the warriors, the merchants, whatever. And then, of course, then there were the religious, right? Which is still, um, you know, in use in the Catholic Church today. If you talk about the religious, you're talking about the clergy, the the monks and the priests and the bishops and and all those folks. Um, and then, and then it came, uh, you know, the, the next understanding of secular has to do more with the secularism, um, but he also wants to talk about it in terms of society becoming more and more secular, right? Which we, you know, people, people talk about it in that way. So um, we might track church attendance or mm -hmm. belief in God or something like that and say, well, is society getting more secular or is it not, right? And this kind of... Um, these kinds of trends. And then the third uh, way he wants to talk about secular, which is what he says kind of lies uh, beneath all of this, is sort of an orientation toward the good life. Mm -hmm. uh, where are you focusing your energies? Uh, what is your highest aspiration, not only for yourself, but for all of humanity? Uh, does it have to do with the affairs of this world alone? Or is there room for something beyond this world? So, 
that's that's kind of uh, Taylor's idea in a nutshell, and a kind of a longer answer to that question of what is uh, secularism or secularity. The answer is it, it depends, right? Yeah, it depends on what exactly you want to talk about. Um, but Taylor wants to tell a story coming from that third understanding of secular and show how it's, it unites all these other things that we've discussed. It's a moral orientation toward reality. So, so secularism is not necessarily the denial of God's existence. It's almost operating kind of pragmatically as though God doesn't really matter for the here and now. Is that maybe one way to put it in some senses? Yeah, yeah, it can operate that way. Um, so, you know, uh, American conservatives will often look at France as kind of a uh, way of secularism gone bad, right? Where mm-hmm. uh, religion is almost excluded from from public life, right? Uh, mm-hmm. Do whatever you want in private, that's okay, but don't make us have to deal with it. Mm-hmm. Um, but the, there's a religious root to this secularism as well, um, which is the idea that, uh, we are accountable only to God for spiritual things. And so it is not the place of your, your government or your guild or anything like that, uh, to put pressure on you to have a certain kind of relationship with God. Uh, mm-hmm. and, and therefore, we need to have some, you, you can certainly live that relationship in public in certain ways, as long as it's not like super interfering with public life. But you, um, it really is, uh, goes hand in hand with the invention of, of religion, right? Mm-hmm. This idea that a religion can be something that you have or, or something that you are, uh, not just something that you do, right? In the Middle Ages, mm-hmm. your religion was whether how intensely you practice the Catholic faith, right? Uh, speaking mm-hmm. now of, of Western Christianity, mm-hmm. um, you know, there were, and, and Taylor talks about this as, I, I kind of uh, describe it as two lanes to heaven, right? There's a fast lane and a slow lane, right? <laughs> if you want to get in the fast lane, you can become a religious and do all these, you know, say all these prayers, do all these wonderful deeds, right? And you'll you'll get to heaven in a hurry. You can skip purgatory, and and you could even skip purgatory with some gas left over that you could give to other people, uh, you know, to help them uh, get through purgatory quicker. Right? Um, I'm using an, an analogy here for mm-hmm. you know, the treasury of merit and all these medieval concepts. Mm-hmm. And, uh, but but for everybody else, there's sort of a slow lane. So your religion was was sort of how whether you wanted to be in the fast lane or the slow lane and how fast or slow you were going those kinds of things but uh, with the modern world religion came to mean this relationship with god f- to which i am accountable uh through my conscience right mm-hmm. and um once once that relationship is set up and established then i can find other people who you know, uh, have faith similarly to me, and we can form associations of Christian communities, right? Um, but it's not the role of the government to make sure that I'm, uh, you know, not in the in the lanes they want me to be in, right? I can mm-hmm. I can you know even get on a totally different highway, if you will. Did that did that make any sense? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So, so I guess it raises questions, and you're not. You're not making any moral or normative judgments on this distinction, but it, it obviously has incredible implications for church-state dynamics and how we understand the role of government to relate to religion. How, how would you unpack that a little bit? Oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, um, it's it's huge. and. Um, it, you know, not, not just within our own countries, but in geopolitics, right? Um, mm-hmm. uh, I, I view the Muslim world as being in a civil war over how to respond to these developments, uh, of, of, of secularism, right? Mm-hmm. Just how mm-hmm. tightly does the, do the state and the church, the government and the, um, imams, if you will, or whatever need to be embedded in order, uh, for the Muslim faith to be lived properly, Right. Mm-hmm. They're, they're fighting a war over that. Um, 
and and we're fighting culture wars over it in America, which are you know uh, as we've seen in the news recently, starting to become in some ways hot wars as well, right? Mm, yeah. um, so it's it is um, you know the, these questions are are profound; they're not easily answered. But we do, I think, need to come to a place where we can make some kind of commitment um, to to a certain way of answering them. Um, Otherwise, it's it's hard to say that we are fully living out the call of Christ. I think mm-hmm, uh, mm-hmm. because um, you know how you understand something like discipleship um, will influence in a certain way just how exact how much you want the government to be involved in in Christian discipleship, right? Yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, those are complicated questions that that deserve significant, obviously, wrestling and unpacking. Um, I, I had a I had a friend visiting recently from outside of New England who was just encouraging me because of how and similar to Canada, although I don't know what it's like in Alberta. I know it's a little more religiously conservative in Alberta than say, you know, Ontario Quebec. or Quebec. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but he was just, you know, encouraging me because I am in the, you know, in the middle of a, a, a secular hotbed in New England. And, you know, there's a lot of, of, of skepticism and resistance. And as I was reflecting on what he was saying, I said, you know, I said to myself, I don't, I don't know that that's entirely true. I think there's a certain stereotype that exists about the secular mind, which says, that everyone basically is like Richard Dawkins, like <laughs> extremely hostile towards Christianity or religion in general. And, and I find that it's more of an apathy than a hostility. Yeah. And, um, and that people are, and this kind of relates to what, what I was going to ask you about next. It's not that they are hostile or, or, um, against the idea of God, it's just that there is an uh, over concern with the here and now and and the imminent rather than the transcendent. And I have found that that attitude also exists within the the mind of the typical Western Christian as well. So we're we're not. The the the, yeah. the the battle, so to speak, is not over God's existence or not. The battle is over kind of the imminent. The uh, the word the term materialism has a certain connotation, but that's that's I think partly what it's getting at um, is that people are more concerned about the here and now than the the hereafter. Um, I don't know. Is that something that that you notice as well? And and like I said, that relates kind of the next question about imminent versus transcendent goods. Um, what, do, what do you think about what I just described? Yeah, I, I think that's true. Um, uh, going back to Dawkins, I think new atheism is probably, I mean, it left its mark, but it's sort of run out of cultural steam, right? I think mm-hmm, the, mm-hmm. the movement phase of it is kind of over, although the, you know there are still people like that around. Um, but they didn't really... I think make such a dent as as we thought they might, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I think, as you've described, what's what's more um, more relevant is uh, those who aren't even up for the argument, right? Mm-hmm. At least mm-hmm. the new atheists were up for the argument, right? Yeah, about yeah. God, you know. Mm-hmm. So the conversation was still about God, um, but but now it's like, well, why should I even like? What difference is that argument going to make in my life? Like right mm-hmm. now, I need mm-hmm. something more. Um, but I do think that the current cultural moment is is deeply invested in the question of meaning. Mm, yeah, like, absolutely. What, what is what is the meaning of life? Right, like it, it meaning as opposed to a kind of a kind of mere happiness, right? Like, uh, I'm not talking about like the Aristotelian eudaimonia, like flourishing and all of that, but, you know, just a kind of, uh, you know, a life where, um, 
you know, you, you get up, you go to work, you come back, you watch TV or have a hobby or something and, and have some simple pleasures in life, you know, uh, maybe a modern Epicurean, if you will, and, <laughs> and then go to bed and repeat, right. And, and build up your 401k and all like, but, but how does that mean something, right? What is, what is the, the, the important thing that matters that all of that connects to? I think those questions are really relevant right now. So I don't see this age as being um, in any way less spiritual in that way. Ta- spirituality talking about kind of what what animates our whole reason for being, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I, I It's just that people don't necessarily see how God matters for that, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then the question is, if God, if God matters for that meaning in life, then how does God matter for meaning in life? Um, and that goes into that question of imminent and transcendent. Mm. Um, yeah. So, so unpack that. Did the imminent transcendent, I guess, binary I would use for lack of a better term, talk a little bit about that. Yeah. So imminent and transcendent um, comes out of Christian theology around the Trinity, right? The imminent Trinity mm-hmm. and the transcendent Trinity, um, those aspects of God that are imminent means immediate. Um, and here it's spelled with an A instead of a I, I think. Mm-hmm. It's imminent, which means it's going to happen soon. It's immediate in that way. Mm-hmm. But there's immanent with an A, which means it's, it's close to our reality, um, so there's these aspects of God that are close to our reality and then transcendent means, uh, in some way beyond, right? We can't, there's, there's some aspect of God, uh, to which we cannot attain knowledge, you know, um, without some sort of God jumping over to our side, right? Mm-hmm. That's a transcendent part of God or even a, a, a part of God to which, you know, we would, we would never attain knowledge, right? Um, and what, what uh, Taylor is following a, a philosopher called Karl Jaspers here, um, a German guy who who sort of sketched out religious history in terms of uh, the ways God is good for us. So now taking these terms imminent and transcendent, instead of talking about God's uh, reality or how we know God, uh, we're talking about how is God good for us. Imminent would mean God is good for us and that he gives us his blessings in this worldly, in this life, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and, and Jaspers identifies this with paganism, um, where the whole point of religion is sort of attaining uh, blessings in the here and now from the deities mm-hmm. uh, in Taylor's in, in Jaspers' framework. And then he, he, there's this axial age philosophy that he brings in, which is debated, you know, how, how do these categories actually match history or not? But the point is, there is also a religious experience where God is pursued for God's own sake. Um, or not necessarily even God, but some kind of transcendent reality, right? Where, mm-hmm. um, for example, I was reading about uh, a certain class of Buddhist monks who uh, attained a level of meditation by which they were able to ingest the agents of their own embalming and uh, poison themselves, but also preserve their bodies literally from the inside out. And okay. in doing so, attain some <laughs> release from this worldly cycle, right? I mean, that would be an extreme example of yeah. transcendent religion that renounces like all worldly goods for the mm-hmm. sake of attaining something that's supposed to be good for your soul, okay? Um, so we would call, you know, kind of that extreme transcendence like asceticism, basically. Um, and then there'd be a question of, you know, where, you know, what's ascetic and what's not and all that. But, uh, what Taylor says is now after the middle ages, you know, in the middle ages, we kind of had a focus on the transcendent and now we're in this secular age where people are kind of like, well, which one should I do? You know, is it one is the other? Is it a mix of both? It seems that in a secular age, people can't really wrap their heads around renouncing imminent goods in that sort of extreme Mm -hmm. ascetic way. I think we call people who do that cult, you know, basically, uh, we think they're, they've gone off to some weird extreme, uh, when they try to do that sort of stuff. Um, but so, so I think it's really more a question, at least for Christians. And it seems that God wants us to, to have a good life in this world. 
so it's a question of, is, is God only good for giving us a good life in this world, or is God good uh, for us in, in some ways in terms of this world and in some ways in terms of things that are good for us beyond this world? Because where this really cashes in is if there's something that's good about God beyond this world, then we express that by giving up things that would otherwise be good for us in this world to mm, attain to mm. those higher transcendent goods. Mm, and mm-hmm. uh, that's scary for people who don't hold to transcendent goods. They think that's mm. extreme. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And so, and so obviously the, we'll just use the term, the typical or stereotypical secular mind that is overtly, we'll say non non-committed to the theistic worldview um it goes without saying that they would have an imminent um you know outlook and but but it's but it's it's definitely present within much of christianity either explicitly or implicitly i mean an example one might be able to give as far as the implicit goes would be you know um the prosperity gospel type thing i mean Mm -hmm. this is an example of imminent Christianity, isn't it? Yeah, I think it, it certainly can be, um, you know, where where the whole focus is on, you know, um, you say these words, you say these prayers, you give money to me, God will give back to you. It's kind of transactional in that way. Um, a lot mm-hmm. of, uh, in a way, it's almost neo-pagan, right? Mm-hmm. Um, yes, yeah. Yeah, from, from within Carl Jasper's framework. But I want to back up and just say that for Taylor... Uh, to have a secular mind means not that you only go for the imminent, um, mm-hmm. but that you're always troubled by the question of, you know, to a greater or lesser extent, always troubled by the question of should we add the transcendent or not? Mm-hmm. Um, because there are people living all around us who seem to be living, you know, perfectly good lives, you know, um, mm-hmm. you know, good, good people as far as that goes. Um, but unlike me, they don't hold to any transcendent notion of a transcendent good. Mm-hmm. And then for them, it's, it's the opposite, right? They will meet people mm-hmm. like you and me and say, wow, you know, these guys seem to be giving up a lot for God, but they also seem to be quite fulfilled and happy and, you know, balanced in many aspects of their life. So, you know, it, it's, it's to live in this time when you have to make a choice, right? Is mm-hmm. what it means to, to have the secular mind. Uh, but I do agree that what most people mean when they say secular mind is um, someone who's living only for the imminent. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Now, did I did I dodge your question or no? Uh, no, I think yeah. I, I don't think you did. I, I think um, I, I was going to kind of follow up with um, like how do we live within that tension of the both and you know I think of yeah. C.S. Lewis somewhere says you know those. I'm paraphrasing to a great degree. Those who make the greatest difference in this world, you know, are primarily focused on the world to come. I think it was Lewis who said that. Mm. Um, so how how does that work together where the Christian is not overly focused on one or the other, but but you know, finds that balance between the two? I, I don't think that I can answer that one philosophically. Um, <laughs> okay. <laughs> yeah. Well, answer it pastorally. Well, yeah. Uh, I think I have to answer it actually theologically, right? I think it goes okay, down yeah. to how you interpret um, the biblical text or whatever your other theological sources are, and then how uh, you see God is telling you to strike that balance, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, if... So if you're if you're Catholic, I mean, um, you're you're going to try to discern if God's calling you to a, a, a you know religious order, or if He's calling you to live a more secular life, right? And then you know it would cash out in certain ways from there. Um, but what it means to be Protestant, at least according to Taylor, is to have a view that everybody should really uh, be more or less in the same lane, right? Uh, we don't get to heaven via any different means, you mm-hmm, see, mm-hmm, or get there any quicker or slower. Um, so that's then. Then you've got this whole other challenge of okay, well, you know exactly what is God calling me to give. You know, in, in I would say that 
uh, and different Protestant religions understand that in different ways, right? They'll especially have a different relationship to the law and the new covenant and those kinds of things. Um, the Avendist tradition, I've argued, is founded on a on an Eden to Eden hermeneutic uh, mm-hmm, for interpreting mm-hmm. life. Um, so we would want to prioritize very much. Um, for example, um, resting on the seventh day as, as happened after creation, right? Cause we're, we're really focused on a kind of a journey back to Eden. Mm-hmm. Um, and we would give up a lot in order to make that happen. Um, whereas other people might look at that and say, well, I could see the benefits of resting on a certain day of the week, but I wouldn't necessarily give as much up for that as you guys would. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's, it's it's not something that uh, well i will say this i think most people can agree on a core cluster of natural human goods that kind of need to be in place uh or or all other things being equal should be in place to live a fulfilled life right mm-hmm. um mm-hmm. maslow's hierarchy of needs uh, you know yeah. is kind of one way of doing that um yeah. but when it comes to those higher needs right um we're going to look not just in terms of self-actualization, but in terms of sacrifice for a, for a transcendent um, good that, that God is offering us. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So how, you know, and obviously this is a, a very sensitive kind of, I don't want to say side street, but you have written about and talked about how this relates to sexuality. You've used the, example of the Sabbath as kind of having some sort of um, analogous, you know, value in, in the question of sexuality, of sacrificing some imminent goods for transcendent goods. So, so tell, tell us a little bit about how, how this sort of imminent transcendent um, distinction might relate to sexuality. Yeah. Um, so maybe I'll start with the analogy. When, uh, and, and I've had this happen as an Adventist pastor, right? When someone who's come to Canada from another country comes into my office and says, uh, my boss is telling me that I need to work on Sabbath, right? Um, and if I don't, they're going to, you know, take away my job. And if I don't have a job, then I can't stay in Canada, and they're kind of caught in a bind, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, because Canada mm-hmm. has certain religious liberty protections for observance of holy days and so forth, but it's hard to claim those if you're supposed to go back to your own country, you know. Um, <laughs> so, uh, you know, the, and, and of course, this person's family has probably put up a lot of money for them to even get to Canada in the first place, and now they're relying on them to produce and send home, right? Um so, so what do you say in, in such a case? I mean, obviously, no one would deny that having the job would be good for this person, right? And say, well, mm-hmm. well you should just keep Sabbath because that job isn't really good for you anyways, right? No, we, we mm-hmm. wouldn't say mm-hmm. that. Um, mm-hmm. You know, instead, I, I invite them to, I, I, well, at first, I tell them I can't be your conscience for you, right? Like, that's not mm-hmm. my job as a pastor. I can tell you what I think God is saying. And, and I'm, I, I think he's saying that we need to rest from our weekly work on this day. And then finally, I can encourage you to step out in faith and see what kind of miracle God would work for you. Because, you know, you don't, uh, you know, this, this is one of those times when you get to see God in a real way acting in your life. Um, and, and it turns out that, uh, uh, you know, for people who take these kinds of stands, God finds a way to work things out for them. It, you know, that's mm-hmm. been my experience. Um, mm-hmm. So I make this analogy to same-sex marriage, right? Um, where I think we've gone off the rails by trying to uh, say that these kinds of, uh, at least in conservative Christianity, trying to say that these kinds of relationships are just no good for people at all, right? No, mm-hmm. in fact, for somebody mm-hmm. who has these kinds of attractions and God doesn't take uh, them away from from this person, uh, you know, there are many fulfilling things about being in a same-sex relationship. And a committed same-sex relationship is better than one that's not and all this, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, but what I'm arguing, at least for my Adventist community, is that if we maintain this uh, uh, Eden to Eden hermeneutic, 
um, then we need to be able to invite people to give up something that would otherwise be good for them in order to uh, say something important about their relationship with God, to make this to make this sacrifice, if you will, for God. Um, and then what I've also argued is that we need to um, not just say, well, uh, you do it because that's the way God wants it, right? No, I think mm-hmm. God is trying to teach us something about himself uh, by the way we live out these practices. So that, that's my argument in a nutshell. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that's, uh, as you and I have talked about before, it, it sort of makes, if we're going to say that there's two sides, quote unquote, it kind of it kind of challenges both sides because on the one hand, even the admission that, hey, this might be good for you, it might lead to some sort of, you know, flourishing on some level mm-hmm. is, is uncomfortable to those who would take a more hardline, uh, traditional approach. And then of course, the idea that you would encourage somebody to sacrifice or to engage in self-denial is challenging to those who seem to be on a a primarily, uh, imminent only, uh, worldview, right? Yeah, absolutely. And, and I think, um, you know, they don't. You don't necessarily have to be in an imminent only worldview to to disagree with me on this point, right? You could just mm-hmm. be operating out of a different theological, uh, ethical hermeneutic, right? Um, that that doesn't, you know, place as high a priority on Eden or some other thing, right? Um, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But uh, for those for whom you know. Uh, that's just completely off the table. It, it might be an indication that you know, at least on this on this point, um, yeah, you you don't feel that that's something where where there's a transcendent good involved. And then the question is, do you even allow for transcendent goods at all in your experience? Maybe not. Mm-hmm. Maybe your Christianity mm-hmm. is. Uh, I think for for a lot of people, I mean, when when did uh, Christian Smith write that book on on the religious lives of American teenagers? Um, mm, I don't know. You know, in the in the in the two thousand early two thousands, I think at some point. I mean, these people are now growing up in adults. Um, so I think for a lot of uh, adult Christian these days, um, moralistic therapeutic deism is is the religion, right? Mm-hmm. Where unpack, God is, unpack that. Sorry, I'll unpack that. Uh, <laughs> that. Go ahead. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So moralistic means, um, you know, that that uh, we should be a good person, right? There's a lot of, mm-hmm. uh, you know, don't do this, be kind, be generous, whatever, right? Um, and then therapeutic is that God's primary function is to make me uh, feel good about myself when when I'm not those things or when I struggle in life and so forth. And then deism is the idea that God doesn't really uh, interact with the world. He doesn't intervene in our, he doesn't work those miracles for us when we give up things Mm -hmm. for him that I just talked about. Right. Mm -hmm, So it's mm -hmm. a very immunitized, I would call it form of American Christianity or, or even American religion, because I think they identified this across Catholics, Protestants, Mormons, you know, it's, it's Mm -hmm, more or mm -hmm. less the, you know, the basic religious assumption of, of a lot of Americans, um, who, who, who grew up with this, um, kind of being passed on to them through the culture and in youth groups and things like that. Um, so yeah, I, I can see why somebody with that perspective, you know, it would be very challenging to say, well, you ought to give up this thing that could be super, uh, fulfilling and satisfying for you for something that's even more fulfilling and satisfied, namely mm-hmm. God. Right. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Be- yeah. I think, Sorry, go ahead. I was just going to add because in that paradigm, God doesn't ask you to do those things. He's He's there to yeah. make you feel good about yourself. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think um, if I remember correctly, a few years ago, well, I can't remember his name right now, slipping me. But the creator of VeggieTales, I think he basically came out and admitted that you know VeggieTales was kind of this moralistic therapeutic deism that he never intended for it to be. But um, you know, fortunately, I think he's. He's seen the errors of his ways, but yeah, like the idea of sacrifice is not a very popular ingredient within, um, first of all, the world and even within, within the church. I mean, yeah. Like, so what's, what's that all about? 
Yeah. Um, so just to, to go back, the guy is Phil Vischer. Phil Vischer, yes, yes. And you. if you have kids, his series, What's in the Bible with Buck Denver, which is basically a television puppet show, you know, it can't get more evangelical than a, than a kid's puppet show, but it's really <laughs> good for teaching kids the Bible. And we nice. got our kids on that and not VeggieTales. Uh, so end of that, <laughs> that was a, you know, free plug for Phil, uh, you know. There you go. Phil, Phil, Phil send me some, uh, know some bucks, Phil. No, <laughs> <laughs> um, no uh, so the question on sacrifice, I think actually um, we do uh, really enjoy and respect sacrifice in, in the society, just not for transcendent goods. Hmm. Right. Okay. Um, yeah. We, uh, uh, I mean, this this attracts a lot of attention in culture when somebody, I mean, uh, uh, sports. I mean, sports involves tremendous sacrifice, mm. right? Mm -hmm. And and we we watch those videos about the athlete's journey to, you know, when they're how they eat right, how they train, how they sleep instead of going out, you know, all these things, and you know, they finally achieve what they wanted, right? I mean. In fact, I would argue that it's fundamental to what it means to be a person is to be able to order the goods in your life so that you give up things that are lesser goods in order to attain to things that are greater goods, right? The hmm. question is, do those uh, greater goods include transcendent goods or not? People who can't structure the goods of their life in that way uh, we more or less see as defective somehow, right? They might be mm -hmm. addicts, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. They might be, um, you know, even even have mental illnesses or things like that, right? Uh, or you know, the, we we have different ways of classifying people who just struggle to do this or can't do it at all, and we really laud and respect those who can do it in a way that, um, you know, uh, results in them achieving something that we find respectful and and noteworthy. Um, I'm thinking of, for example. Um, Alex Honnold, you know, Alex Honnold. Uh, yeah. Isn't he the climber? Yeah. Yeah. The free soloist, yeah. right? Yeah. 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 You know, who, who, who had a project of, of free soloing, um, this, this big face in Yosemite and, uh, you know, just worked on that and worked on it. I mean, he, when he went up there, he had every single move memorized and choreographed. Mm -hmm. I mean, the guy mm -hmm. would hang from a fingerboard for like an hour a day, you know, um, tremendous sacrifice to attain to this goal, which is um, in many ways sort of a pinnacle of self-actualization. Uh, it was it was meaningful in a way for its own sake, but it wasn't meaningful in terms of anything beyond this world, right? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. It, was, it didn't have anything to do with God or nirvana or anything like that. Um, so I think there is a way to introduce the concept of sacrifice that's relatable to people who have uh have an imminent only perspective on what's good in life mm, mm. yeah but so so kind of a follow-up um actually a couple follow-ups if i remember both of them <laughs> um so to what degree does a person have to understand what the transcendent good is in order for them to adequately feel um compelled to surrender the imminent for the transcendent do you know do you know what i mean i think we've kind of talked about this before but let's just say the question of sexuality like what could what what would the transcendent good be of me choosing to deny my sexual appetite mm, yeah yeah understand is a tricky word um <laughs> Because within the the um, within the hermeneutical framework of people like Heidegger and Gadiger talking about philosophy, did I say Gadiger? I meant Gadamer. Uh, <laughs> other philosophers in that tradition, uh, probably the most accessible read into that would be someone like James K. Smith. If you've mm -hmm, encountered mm -hmm. any of his work, yes, I have. Um, really enjoy it. Yeah, the idea is that understandings uh, can be can be tacitly held through our practices, and not necessarily verbally expressed. Mm, um, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. This is the way, for example, I mean, um, holding to a typological framework for the Old Testament, like I do, that I think that 
the plan of salvation was understood by those who participated in the sanctuary and temple services, right? They didn't have mm -hmm. a, a cognitive expression of it the way that we do after the arrival of Jesus Christ. But mm -hmm. the practice of those rituals day after day, week after week, year after year, was meant to inculcate through their practices uh, understandings that gave the Jewish people a background to understand what Jesus was doing when it happened, uh, to, mm -hmm. to conceptualize mm -hmm. it. That's why you know, part of what it means for Christ to come in the fullness of time, I think. Um, so there is a way in which then understanding can proceed through obedience mm -hmm. rather mm -hmm. than through explanation. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, and then what a hermeneutical cycle is there is, is a back and forth between the two things, right? As we obey more, we're able to explain more. And then as we explain more, we're able to obey more and, and go back and forth that way and build mm -hmm. up the whole reservoir of understandings, if we could pluralize that. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, that's good. I think that's really, really good. I, I We had a guest on a few weeks ago, um, in, who's in recovery and she, she, you know, cited what they say in recovery, how action precedes understanding. And, um, I think it was, I think it's, well, it's probably a lot of people, but, um, I know Henry Nowen talks about how we don't think our way into a new way of living. We live our way into a new way of thinking. Hmm. Um, and so, but then maybe kind of, a follow-up on that is how do we avoid turning the how do we avoid turning the prospect of the transcendent from being sort of a in christian terminology a works righteousness like okay i'm going to not give in to my sexual temptation so that i can go to heaven type thing you know what i'm saying yeah yeah um this is always the question when we start talking about the habits and the formation of practices and things like that. Um, you know, it, it can certainly slip that way. Um, I, I think it may uh, have to do with 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 how we uh, live our our need for fuller meaning with reference to God. Uh, let me just back up and say what I mean by that, right? Uh, when you when you're living for this world alone, there's a certain limit to um, the the amount of connection, if I can call it that, that's available mm -hmm. between your life and something that matters in a way that's much bigger and better and beyond your life. Mm -hmm. And when you have a transcendent uh, source of good, then you can you know proliferate even more connections. Um, I take meaning, meaning means for me, at least in this context, uh, the reference to that which matters. So a mm -hmm. life that's meaningful is a life that's lived with reference to things that matter. Mm -hmm. When you have a transcendent source of good, you can, you can really live life with reference to what matters, right? You've got all these other ways of doing it. It can, it can matter to you in some, you know, I, I, the word is the word that Taylor and Jasper uses is fullness. Okay. You can get this yeah. fullness of meaning. Um, and, and that meets a lot of our existential needs. Um, and so I think that when people get into fullness of meaning, um, they can do it in, in very self-centered ways. Mm -hmm. right? mm -hmm. um, where it's like, okay, how do I get that sense of meaning again and in an even bigger and more impactful way? And that takes you down that ascetic road, right? Mm -hmm. Where you're mm -hmm. really like looking for the next major thing that you can give up. Um, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So what I think Christ's righteousness does for us is say, no, you know, um, you don't have to, you know, keep looking for the next thing to, to make your life seem so meaningful because here's how meaningful it is. Jesus died for you, Right. And if you were the only one, he still would have died for you. Uh, that's how much God gave up for you, right? Before you mm -hmm. gave up anything mm -hmm. for God. That's mm -hmm. how much your life matters with respect to transcendent meaning. Okay. 
And yeah. then the other sources of transcendent goods, uh, you know, can can find their place within that already established framework of your your life mattering and meaning so much with reference to God because of what Jesus did, not because of what you did. Mm. Yeah, that's good. That's that's kind of a, the direction I was I was uh, gonna gonna go um, in, in follow up. And so, yeah, it's I think you know, we sacrifice, our sacrifices are only attainable in light of the, the sacrifice of God in many ways. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah. yeah, well, David, I, we could go on forever talking about this stuff. Um, I don't want to keep our listeners too long, but I, I did want to kind of wrap all this up with maybe a practical question in light of, of, you know, what we've uncovered or, or explained about a secular age, uh, in, in light of, you know, imminent versus transcendent. Um, what would you say are some very practical, you know, ways we can reach this secular age with the gospel? Yeah. Um, I, I, I think obviously, uh, you know, from my perspective, we need to, to invite people into both, um, sources of good and meaning in life. Uh, but we start with what we all have in common, which is, uh, the need to make it in this world. Mm. Um, so Matthew chapter four, I forget exactly which verse, but Jesus goes around, uh, proclaiming the kingdom of heaven and healing in their cities. Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. I think that's that's the the gospel of the kingdom, I should say, and healing their cities. Mm-hmm. So I think that's that's our model as Jesus' approach. Um, uh, going out and healing uh, gains us an audience for when we talk to people about this thing beyond this world that's coming, which is the kingdom of heaven that God is coming to set right all the wrongs of this world and bring about the restoration of all things. Um, that only makes sense if we're showing people what that's going to look like in a practical and tangible way in their lives today. And I think we can categorize all of those, uh, aspects of, um, you know, reaching out to people who are suffering, to the oppressed, helping people who are uh, wealthy and well-to-do, uh, you know, uh, but struggling with loneliness, helping them find healing, helping people with addiction, right? I think it all kind of comes back to, um, Christ's example of a healing ministry and mm, restoring mm-hmm. uh, the image of God in humanity that was lost in, in little tiny ways just to give people a picture on what that bigger restoration will look like. Um, so I, I, I would I would suggest, I, you know, and this is nothing revolutionary, but just that those two need to be connected in some way in the mission of churches. And I see that people often disconnect them, right? You have churches that mm. do tremendous work in the community, but you struggle with knowing how to invite the people that they're meeting with to follow Jesus. And then you have churches that, you know, have amazing advertising campaigns and all of this kind of stuff, and people are getting baptized, but they're, you know, that's like the mm-hmm. extent of their mm-hmm. involvement in the community, right? The, putting mm-hmm. those two together seems to be the secret sauce, as I like to call it. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, you may have to talk to somebody a little more practically minded <laughs> to know exactly <laughs> how to do that. Uh, not, not any more practically minded than you, David. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I think, you know, that first part, and this is what, you know, we're, we're struggling with, you know, to find that balance here in just in my local context is there's a temptation because you and I come from a faith community, at least in my experience that has maybe emphasized the transcendent a little more. Yeah. Um, it's it's really tempting to immunitize the mission and um, not remember to point to the transcendent. But I think of what Tim Chester, who's a missional theorist, has said. He says, you know, demonstration without proclamation is like a signpost pointing nowhere. Hmm. And um, somebody else that I read a lot. You know, he says when when we fail to when we fail to point people to Jesus, you know, when we do these these good works, um, we rob God of His glory. 
And um, so, yeah, finding that that balance is so incredibly important. Something that I'm, I, I, I wrestle with day in and day out. So I think those are good words. Yeah, I, so, I wrestle with it too. I mean, I, I, hmm. I'm trying stuff. You know, I don't necessarily have mm-hmm. any answers, but I can say um, that I have found it in my experience to work. Right. Um, mm-hmm. uh, for example, uh, our faith community is really big on uh, you know healthy living, right? Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, through through a you know a um, you know a community outreach program centered around that, we have been able to, uh, invite people to follow Jesus and, and bring them through to, uh, baptism and, and, you know, involvement in the body of Christ and then going out and, and contributing, uh, in the similar lines of ministry. Um, so it, it does happen. Um, I've seen it happen in my own ministry experience. Um, I just would, would like to see it happen more and more broadly mm-hmm. and more of us doing this kind of ministry the way Jesus did it um, so that we could learn even more from each other. Mm, yeah. Yeah. I think not to belabor the point, but for me, I'm constantly living within the tension of um, kind of investing in people for their sake mm-hmm. with like, on the one hand, you don't have an agenda, but on the other hand, you, you do, or you should, like, we should ultimately bless people because they have, you know, they bear the image of God, they're worthy, whether or not they ever, they ever choose to, to, to join your faith community. But on the other hand, we do have a transcendent message that we do want them to embrace. So like that, that tension is something that I'm always wrestling with. Yeah, and I'll just using another example. Um, it it doesn't always have to be intention. Um, uh, we had one person who came into the the health outreach, and you know was really interested in what we were doing. You know, there was basically zero preaching or proclamation at all happening there. Right? It was mm-hmm. all focused mm-hmm. on you know how to live well in this world, basically. Right. Um, mm-hmm. we, we didn't hide that we were a church group, but we kept the atmosphere enjoyable and, and focused on, you know, just improving people's lives in a very basic way that everybody could relate to. And this person came in and said, well, how, uh, you know, who's, who's, who, you know, you guys are running this thing, right? How do I join the group that's running this? I would like to contribute. And then at that point, you know, I, I worry that certain people say, well, you know, you kind of got to be baptized in order to do that, right? Mm-hmm, but we mm-hmm. said, nope, you know, again, it's no agenda here. So come on in and join our exec who's running the thing. Um, mm-hmm. It we And then what we what we told it uh, was there's going to be a, on Saturday, there's going to be a vegetarian potluck, bring your dish. And um, after that potluck is when we meet and do the thing. So, of course, that was the potluck that happens after our Saturday service, right? Mm-hmm, <laughs> so, mm-hmm. uh, you know, uh, they started coming to uh, the potluck and the meeting and then started coming, er, er, you know, a little bit early for the potluck and catching the end of my sermons and then started coming for the whole sermon and then the whole service, right? And, mm-hmm. you know, there were other things involved as well, but it all started with a willingness to accept where they were as a person, someone who bears the image of God and has something to contribute here, even if they don't believe exactly the same way we do, uh, we mm-hmm. felt uh, because of where they were at that they would be, you know, they weren't going to disrupt the leadership of the thing. And and that's how it worked out without us necessarily having to have an agenda, right? Yeah, 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 absolutely. Yeah, that's that's a great example of, of how it should work. And um yeah. So David, I appreciate you coming on. We could, like I said, I say this to every guest, but we could talk for hours, I'm sure, but uh, we'll, we'll maybe follow up at a future time. Um, good luck to you all the way up there in Edmonton. Do you have any snow yet here on September 29th? We are experiencing uh, glorious weather here for the end of September. Um, it is in fact supposed to be in the mid seventies by the weekend. Oh, uh, so wow. we are just, yeah. we had a, a wet, rainy spring and early summer. So we're just loving this right now. Nice. It is a little warmer here as well. Unseasonably warm. Feels like 
summer kind of just gets pushed back a month these these days, uh, <laughs> yeah. you know, with the climate. Um, but wow, so no snow yet in in northern Alberta. That's good. Well, Glad to hear you that. Know, having lived in actual northern Alberta, I can't call Edmonton northern Alberta, oh. but um, yeah, it is Canada's farthest north uh, provincial capital. So, <laughs> uh, I actually have something similar here with us in Bangor. People call it northern Maine, and I'm like, it's not anywhere close to being northern Maine. <laughs> um, so yeah, but people they assume that you know if it's not at the end of the world, it's close. You know, some of these places where where we live right but um yeah so david thank you my friend we'll look forward to catching up with you again soon and uh thanks guys for tuning in hope you've been blessed and stimulated and um we'll look forward to catching up with you next time on mission lab thank you for listening to mission lab our theme song is portland hike by tiny music additional editing by chris ergay Follow us on Twitter at MLabPodcast.